One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's the second time it's gone off. Never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive. I'd like to stay alive. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I want to Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain Football Podcast. I'm Owen McDevitt. I'd like to introduce you to Ken Early. Hello, Owen. How are you? Good and Kieran Murphy. Good to see you. Uh, hello to you both. Hello there, Kieran. There's always something quite exciting about a midweek round of Premier League fixtures, especially the Wednesday games, because by the time you've watched the live match and the analysis afterwards, you're brought right up to match of the daytime, around half ten or so, unless... Your UPC customer and BBC Northern Ireland interrupts the flow by... Sh- I've, I, this happens every time, but I keep forgetting it's about to happen. They interrupt the flow by showing Nolan live, Ken. Mm. Thereby pushing match of the day out to a 20 to 11 start time, finishing up shortly after one in the morning. That's late. I mean, I'm a big fan of Stephen Nolan. Is that his name? Yes. Uh, yeah, I believe We so. all are. Uh, he's a big hit in the South, is Nolan. But, um, <laughs> so sometimes, I, sometimes I think, Nolan, your unique brand of... Cutting edge, current affairs could could just do it, not clogging up my he's a lot my like, brain space. He's a lot like uh, Julian, the uh, UTV continuity announcer, in that he is peculiarly of Northern Ireland. Um, that there's uh, sensibility of play in his broadcasting style, which is wildly popular, I'm sure, with our friends. Well, that's it. Border, that's interesting. Why do you why do you say that? What's what's of Northern Ireland about him? Well, I mean, it, it, he he's a part of the cultural landscape of Northern Ireland, and yet is a figure completely unknown to us here in the south. Not unknown. I mean, you see him. Every, well, no, he's, uh, he's mid, known every now. Midweek Premier League. <laughs> he's known now because he's he's known to that sports guy. fans, bizarrely. Yeah, he's that guy that stops matches. In the south, can we prefer the Vincent Brown approach? We prefer Vincent Brown getting guests on and telling them repeatedly to shut up. <laughs> have them say controversial something controversial then you tell them to shut up Vincent Brown must be the only broadcaster in the world who uh, this is probably not true actually but one of the few broadcasters I can think of who on more than one occasion has told his guests people he has invited onto the show <laughs> to shut up <laughs> and uh, then continue to, uh, to rant away yeah um, yeah I saw that yeah, it, was, it was quite funny I thought I don't know maybe Stephen Nolan does do that um, unfortunately, uh, well, I didn't actually get this. I didn't watch. I didn't watch it in the end. I, I saw. You I saw that it was that on, was, and then you did on. something else with, with your time. I did. I, I spent an extra. I spent an hour just killing a bit of time. Mm-hmm. Doing what? Just playing some video games. 
playing video right. games. You were, you were online, online gaming. Were you uh, connecting with on, it's other online gamers? It's 2015, Carol. I mean, you, you don't seriously think you don't just play anyone sitting there. Anymore, no? no, it doesn't really. Sorry, I, I, my my gaming finished with uh, with uh, Jukes of Hazard. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. Look, what can I what can I say? Look. Things have moved on since the days of Gary Lineker's Superstar Soccer, is all I can say. Mm. Uh, I remember that game from 1988, maybe. And you've gotten scarily proficient at the current iteration. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the only way you could score in Gary Lineker's Superstar Soccer was with a bicycle kick. You had to, there was, there was only one way to score. You had Not to, exactly Lineker's signature move. <laughs> but you move your, your player down the wing, usually. There was probably only about three rails that the player could move down the pitch. Mm. You know, uh, I, I mean, I've, I vaguely remember that the screen would sort of cut to showing the box. Like, it was all from the sideline view. Uh, you'd be in midfield, and then you'd sort of scroll to the, to the right, and then the screen would, would jump cut to the showing the penalty area, and you'd have to cross the ball in. And literally, unless you did a bicycle kick, there was no way that square football was ending up in the net. Now, things have moved on, that's all I can say. So uh, I didn't actually get to see any Stephen Dome, but I did... I did watch the football that was on afterwards. Richie, that fortunately and win, for this win show. And win the Champions League with Norwich City. Richie Sadler is going to be in studio today and Emmett Malone will also be in on the start of the Electricity League tomorrow night. Emmett's going to chat to us about that. It's time now for Ken Early's Stephen Nolan Free Report on Sport. Uh, I suppose I mean, we should start with uh, Chelsea because they are the leaders. And Jose Mourinho, just as he was after the uh, Capital One Cup uh, final victory over Tottenham, is saying... When good football is not enough, we fight, we suffer together, and we cope with difficult moments. <laughs> Once again, Chelsea did not play much good football. Uh, they never really do. Once uh, Jose Mourinho has, he, he they did earlier this season. Yeah, but now that the now that it's kind of getting into the the winning time, that's all pretty much been left to one side. I mean, this is Jose Mourinho does like to go back to basics every season and whenever there's a game that his team really needs to win this is the way that he's going to go about it and he always then says afterwards you know we tried <laughs> we tried to play good football um, I mean he makes the point there were there were a couple of um, misses uh, Diego Costa had a, had a chance a good tackle denied him William had a brilliant chance which he just oh William he can never quite add that string to his bow he's not really yeah. chances He's not really a goal wizard. No, he does a lot of other great things. He's he's a he's a wonderful workhorse who just has got some remarkable anti-goal properties. A wonderful workhorse with a fairly high skill level who just that one particular skill continues to elude. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we had chances to kill the game. That's the other thing about Mourinho. It's always football is always played with the objective of killing the game. That's what he wants to do. That's the as far as he can see the objective of, of his theme kill this game dead I mean it's just the use of language I suppose and he's using not his first language but I think it does give you a hint isn't it, as to how he thinks about the the game of football uh, the, the sooner the game dies the better from his point of view if he was if he had got another route Ken if he'd become a famous rugby coach mm. you'd imagine he would have come through as a defence coach originally you think forwards defence that side of the game, destruction. But he would have been so smart that he would have developed the other areas and become. I don't know. Actually, I think he might have. Um, he might have been quite ingenious. Actually, at coaching backs in rugby, 
I mean, because you see how Chelsea counterattack, and, and it was particularly obvious when Real Madrid were doing it, maybe because Real Madrid were, were playing against weaker teams and had better some better players than Chelsea. You know, instead of William, they had Ronaldo. So, um, that, uh, the way in which Chelsea, when they win the ball, uh, surge forward, you know, three a gr- in a group of three or four. I mean, you could see it a couple of times last night, and it's something that you see from Rio's teams, generally speaking. He's really good at that, setting up those kind of coordinated three-man moves. Okay, you know... Situ- pods, Ken. Hmm? Pods. In rugby, they, they call it. In rugby, they call it. Pod, yeah. Is oh, that because yeah. they're, they're like orcas? Is that it? Macho, a macho animal? Like a no, they're, whale? they're groups of... They're pods, Ken. Just pods. Like peas or whales? <laughs> I mean, there's only, well, they're the only things I can think of. If they're forwards, pods. they're whales. If they're backs, they're little peas. Tiny little peas. Matthew little, Bassero, the tiny yeah, little peas. Tiny, tiny little six foot three, 15 stone peas. They, uh, they do have, you know, they're very good at those. The, these are pre-programmed moves. You know what I mean? There's nothing random about the way Chelsea do this. Um, they, they, that's the kind of thing Mourinho works on really hard and is so effective. I mean, it cuts teams up. Um, I don't know if it could be applicable to a backs rugby. I'm not sure how ultimately relevant but, uh, my thoughts on that are. Well, no, I, I, yeah, it was, it was me who brought up this detour. But now that you mentioned you're making Jose Mourinho sound like Joe Schmidt. And Joe would, Schmidt came through he, his Well, see, I'll tell you why Jose Mourinho would be a brilliant rugby coach. It's because instead of uh, the hand-wringing that goes on in football about cheating, mm. in cheating, being the best cheater means you're a brilliant player in rugby. I mean, cheating is... A, the mo- it's so intrinsically part of the game of rugby that Mourinho would be amazing at it. Yeah. If, if you've seen any of the uh, articles, there's quite a few of them online, de- you know, these deep dives into Ireland's... This Murray Kinsa. Ru- uh, Murray Kinsa and Neil Tracy. Yeah, there, there are a few people um, who do them, yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it's like, watch how Ireland cheat at... Ver- at uh, there's an Ireland player accidentally lying on an opponent. Yeah, Sorry, a- didn't see you there. Or Conor Murray, uh, there's a guy lying offside and Conor Murray deliberately runs over him, gets trips himself up over the player so yeah. that he can be sure the referee sees this... Jack McGrath him. accidentally lying on top of someone to make sure that he can't escape from the ruck while he's lying in an offside position. I mean, Justin Mourinho would be amazing at all of these yeah, things. He really like, he would be... He's actually wasted in football. I think he is quite different from Joe Schmidt, though, uh, in his in his personality. Oh, personality completely different. Uh, but the way in, the way in which particularly he he sort of um, a lot of the time he's he's kind of making sure that everybody's well aware of how amazing he's been. You know, maybe like um, Julius Caesar's commentary on the on his Gallic con- conquests. You know, no point in like, going out and conquering Gaul if people don't get to hear about it. <laughs> so, you know, he wrote it up. What's the problem with that? I mean, and you could say maybe he made himself look good at certain key moments, and that's the version of it that people tend to remember. Um, Jose Mourinho knows that you're not going to get far in this life by sort of playing down your achievements. Well, not most of the time. So he, it's, it's not his personal style, whereas Joe Schmidt seems to be a little bit less... Um, but I, I think Mourinho would be sated by all of the cheating he could get away with. I mean, I think he'd actually be... You know, he'd be a much more... Uh, sanguine personality in the media because instead of everyone saying Jose your team they cheat all the time what you know, what are you doing how could you stand over such behaviour everyone would be saying Jose very masterful very streetwise performance again by your team today Jose very streetwise, streetwise. very professional very professional well they, they you know he, well, he wouldn't even have to you know he'd, he'd be so happy with that the level of cheating he could get away with that he'd actually 
That'd be enough for him. I'm, I'm, we don't mean to imply that Chelsea were cheating last night. It was just um, bloody resilient football, you know? And at the end of the day, top of the league. So Everton could do a bit of that, Ken. Yeah. Everton's not going to like that, as Tom Nix once said. Now, Everton's, Everton's form, I mean, there's a pretty horrendous statistic doing the rounds there after the match last night that Everton have picked up 28 points since the start of the season. Liverpool have 29 points since Christmas. Ugh. Ooh, that's not really not good. I mean, Everton had, were ahead of Liverpool quite recently, and now they're some 20 points behind them or something crazy. Um, Miguel Delaney has a theory that... Uh, I'm bringing Miguel's name up in his absence, but I'm sure if you, if you check his Twitter, you can see uh, that actually Roberto Martinez has decided that the priority for Everton this season should be the Europa League. Um, this, is, this would be Everton's first trophy win in 20 years. And also... It represents a route into the Champions League, which Everton are unlikely to get through the Premier League. They have to finish in the top four. And given given the fact that their budget is so much smaller than several of the teams between them and that, it's, it's hard to see how they can do that. But maybe they can win the Europa League. And also, wouldn't it be a better thing for Everton generally to, to actually win a trophy? Is that not what football is about? I mean, this would be Roberto Martinez, the same manager who won the FA Cup with Wigan the same season that they got relegated. So, which nicely illustrates the dilemma that a club may, may sometimes face. Yeah, it's well, not necessarily like it's a issue, choice yeah. between winning the FA Cup and, and, like, either you win the FA Cup and get relegated or you don't win the FA Cup. It's not like you ever get to make that choice. But I suppose um, a cup campaign does make it a bit more difficult to play your league matches you know what I mean yeah you, do, you don't make the, you, you don't make the choice but you sort of do you kind of do I mean if you if, but I mean we've seen managers Gary Megson probably most memorably and miserably uh, getting Bolton like uh, aborting Bolton's uh, UEFA Cup uh, campaign at the, I think the quarterfinals stage they got the Bolton in the quarterfinals was it the, was it the quarterfinals Martin O'Neill maybe did something quite Martin similar O'Neill with Villa I was thinking about yeah and and then they just sort of put out a reserve team and they're gone. They're rolling along nicely. Yeah, then it's like, now the series. the point of that, you know? But I don't know. It, I don't know if that would make sense. Given the... If you're to win the Europa League, and again, this is, this is maybe... Maybe the problem here is I'm looking at it in terms of the financial rewards. When I shouldn't be, you need to look at it in terms of the game is about glory, you know? But at the professional level, the game is also about money. So the Europa League is worth 15 million... Euros, right, which is to say 11, 12 million sterling, maybe. Um, but every place in the Premier League is worth 1.25 million pounds. Just a place. That's the, you know, that's the, that's the kind of money that you're losing. And then there's the, obviously the fact that winning the Europa League is a real long shot. Surely the priority has got to always be, has got to be the, the Premier League, you know, for reasons of, I mean, boring reasons. But reasons to do with your the future outlook of your club, like it's important to, to remain competitive. Also, even totally taking the financial elements out of it, winning a Europa League but getting relegated from the Premier League, forget about finance. It means you're down in the Championship. For football reasons alone, it's not good to no. get relegated. I mean, everything you'd have to say would would surely Everton, come straight just, back. Uh, would yeah. surely come straight back from the Championship. You know, it's it's not as though getting relegated for one season is the worst thing that's ever that can ever happen to. I mean, it happened to Newcastle recently, and you know they recovered from it very strongly. 
Um, of all teams, though, Everton, there's something, there would be something weird about Everton being relegated. <laughs> it did happen to Martinez's last club, as we mentioned. Yeah. They, you know, Wigan went out of the Premier League and now they're, they're completely, it's a, it's a total bust. Certainly the, um, while, while maybe the, the FA Cup win is, is the most treasured memory of Wigan supporters, maybe it was all worthwhile. Maybe it was like, well, we've done, our, we've done it now. We're like a salmon that's, that's made its way back to the spawning grounds. Um, we've accomplished our mission in life and now we're just going to die and float away. That's maybe they look at it that way. I don't know, um, but it certainly, in the short to medium term, worked out better for Roberto Martinez than it did for Wigan, mm. because he got a great job out of it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, a couple of other things. There was a story there by Neil Ashton, the Daily Mail reporter. He wrote a, wrote up a thing about Twitter, and it was a kind of it's like an article that you've probably read before from somebody who has a lot of Twitter followers. You know, I think one hundred and seventy odd thousand. Uh, as a Daily Mail uh, sports writer, football writer, and uh, obviously, if you got 170,000 followers, a lot of them are are uh, are uh, nutters. <laughs> Don't like necessarily everything that you write, or maybe I mean, we're not talking necessarily about people who are you know unhinged. We're talking about people who sometimes are in a bad mood. Get out of bed the wrong side. Can Don't, appear unhinged on Twitter. Don't like something you've you've written. Think you might be stirring things up a little, or, or maybe, purveying some porky pies in yeah. your in your copy. You know, people have all different opinions. It's a game of opinions, mm. and some of those opinions are harsh. Uh, kill yourself, an Arsenal supporter sent uh, to Neil Ashton. He, he's giving an example of things that you know people say, and you have this experience of get. You know, you wake up in the morning, you check your phone, and. And like in the casual way that you check your text messages and, you know, half the stuff that you're seeing is, you know, death threats or, or vile abuse. And the, and the kind of mildly demoralizing effect this can have on, on man <laughs> as, he, you know, as he goes about his business. Um, uh, it was impossible to monitor the number of people who threatened my life on Saturday, December 11, 2010, when Carlos Tevez's transfer request was reported. You know, this, this sort of stuff. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's... Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, he does say at one point, he, he, he names a couple of Twitter users who he has robust but healthy sort of debates with. They never overstep the mark, but they do have an opinion and can, on occasion, show a sense of humour. They enjoy the exchanges, which might contain some of the slightly patronising <laughs> or superior sounding tone that some, somehow rubs up people the wrong way, you know. Um, uh, I don't know what you, what you think of this own. I mean, this whole idea. Are people entitled to kind of express a you know, nasty opinion if it is their opinion? It is well, only words, no, sticks and stones? It's, this, uh, well, it's, uh, it's an extension of society. And in society, people should be allowed to disagree with each other, should be allowed to ex- exchange robust views, as you say. But I don't think it's fair to go up to somebody in on the street, as I say, Ken, and say, you should kill yourself or I'm going to kill you. No. That's, that's really not good. So I don't see why it should be uh, deemed any more acceptable on Twitter. No, they, they, I mean, should people be on Twitter be entitled to uh, attack uh, the integrity or the human values or the professionalism of a journalist? Probably. They were the words that Andre Villas-Boas used about... Um, actually, it was Neil Ashton. Um... Daily Mail, uh, when he was complaining about some of the coverage that they'd been giving him, he felt uh, you attack, you attack, you attack. Um, and Ashton does, in fairness, concede that uh, journalists do spend a good bit of time giving it out to, to managers, to players. And so, you know, if, the, if it's some of it is coming back, maybe that's something that has to be uh, accepted. Attacking someone's integrity is 
different from saying threatening them and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's that is true. Uh, although, then again, the amplifying effect of an attack on you know your professionalism or human values and so on being in the Daily Mail, which is one of the you know loudest media outlets in certainly in the UK and arguably in the world, uh, maybe is more. Maybe that sort of makes up in a sense for the for the. Okay, say X Twitter user uh, tweets you at Owen McDevitt. Uh, who do you think you are with your stupid face? You know, why don't you just... Faces. And they, Sorry, and, go on. And they say something, just something insulting, something nasty. But at the same time, no one's going to see it apart from you. Well, I mean, any people who happen to follow about you and this person might see it. If you don't respond to it or retweet it, you know, unless people are looking for it. Oh, I wonder, if, is anyone having a go at Owen McDevitt today? <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not going to see it. Whereas if, if there's a kind of a negative piece about you in the Daily Mail, which you think is, is maybe not 100% down the line... <laughs> There's millions of people reading it at this moment, thinking, oh, I never knew that about Andre Villas post. says here some of the Tottenham players. You know, <laughs> anyway. Um, but it, it is definitely true that football has this massive kind of magnifying power. I mean, the, you know, just the, when you look at the sheer number of followers that football reporters have, mm. they're gigantic. Yeah. You know, when you, when you can kind of compare them to people who you might think are more famous, you know, objectively. Oh, completely. Yeah. Say, but say Potter Carrington, for example... Uh, picked up a load of extra followers yeah. on Twitter. Now he doesn't tweet very often. This, 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 this is the thing. I suppose more people might follow Potter Carrington if he tweeted quite a lot. But based on profile, uh, on how famous Potter Carrington is, you would have thought a lot more famous than Neil Ashton, for example. Ken. In Britain, you say it, in Britain, Potter Carrington in is Britain, yeah. like so many more times more famous than but Neil Ashton. He has a hell of a lot uh, fewer 44, followers than that. But maybe, maybe that's followers. not even fair. He does, he does, he, if, somebody's he, not, if somebody's not actually actively yeah. using, yeah. I mean, Potter Carrington. If Potter Carrington was regularly breaking. Um, news about what's going on at Chelsea and maybe Manchester City. Oh, but I mean, even even if, news about himself. Yeah, but even if he was, wasn't a journalist, maybe if he was just sitting at home in between golf tournaments, uh, uh, speculating wildly on transfer stories, he would have three hundred thousand followers <laughs> with <laughs> no information whatsoever. <laughs> Boris Harrington tweets one Paul in Harrington, ten. ITK. Yep. Um, I don't know. I mean, but I mean, it reminded me of this. Uh, the, there was an article by you know John Ronson. John Ronson wrote this piece recently about um, Twitter shaming or yeah. internet shaming. Yeah, really, really interesting piece. And, and his and it was uh, he he was talking to Justine Sacco. Do you remember the name Justine Sacco? Because he mm. definitely would have heard it at the time. But it's one of those so. names that you wouldn't. You know, we all know our memories aren't quite what they used to be. But old Justine Sacco, anyway, a thirty-year-old. Um, kind of marketing, communica- communications, PR person, um, was uh, uh, heading to uh, South Africa on a flight. Well, she was she was in the airport and she was like tweeting to her 170 followers about like, uh, she. so her tweets included, weird German dude, you're in first class, it's 2014, get some deodorant, which I think is a bit judgmental, you know. Maybe not. Maybe that's why you've only got 170 followers. You know, people don't want to hear these little nasty comments. But then she says that she's at Heathrow and she says, "Chili cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth." Back in London again, a little kind of, "Hey, come on, what, you know, what about the London Eye? You know, what about the this, this, this great things about that city? It's not just a, a bunch of snaggletooth, cucumber sandwich eating, sad-looking people. It's London's bigger than that. It is that, but it's bigger." Um. Finally tweets, just as she's about to get in the plane, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Gets on the plane. Right. Arrives in Johannesburg, you know, 12 hours later. Turns on her phone, 
immediately, um, she's got a uh, she's got a text saying, "Oh my god, I'm really sorry to see what's happening to you," and then like a bunch more tweets from or, or texts from her friends saying, "You need to call me." Oh my god! Oh my god! And then you're the number one worldwide trending topic on Twitter right now. So essentially, her tweet in the time that she spent in the air has got has become this supernova, and everybody is obviously going. Oh my God! The hashtag has Justine is Justine's name has Justine landed yet? Yeah, was then became the top okay. trend. So while she's in the plane, completely oblivious to the entire world talking about her tweet, people are tweeting about it to the extent that someone went to the airport to try and get a photograph of her as she got off the plane, checked her phone, and was obviously panicking. Massively. So, so it, it, it became this massive thing. She lost her job, you know, and, and he kind of follows the, you know, the, the impact of this on her life, which was which was terrible, you know. Um, uh, and eventually, she talked to him a couple of times, and, and towards the end, actually, she says he tries to talk to her again, and she said, "No, actually, I'm not talking about that anymore. I've got, I, I've, I think she had a new job or something. And she's I'm moving on with my life." And I thought, well, you know, Pearl Justine Sacker, you know, it's good to see that she's finally moving. You know, none of us could remember her name before we were reminded of it. Even though in for you know twenty four hour period in twenty thirteen she was one of the most famous people on, on Twitter, um, I thought to myself, this is barely one millionth of what happened to David Moyes. It literally is like what he had to go to. Now, in fairness, she's being like sort of shamed for having done something racist, right? Now, David Moyes was never actually being accused of anything like that. But in terms of the ridicule, in terms of the sort of and and I'm sure also the the vitriol. You know what I mean? The kind of venom. Because a lot of angry Manchester United fans really didn't like him. And the, and is the vitriol even that much worse than the mockery? The sort of, oh, Moyes, David Moyes, football genius. Every, everywhere from, like, um, stadiums to, like, you know, <laughs> everywhere he went. When he went to Miami, when he, when he went to Miami at the end when he was sacked, the Daily Mail are photographing him standing there in his, on the beach, you know. I've just been sacked. I'm standing here in Miami on my... In my trunks, hmm. and they're kind of, I, I can, it's kind of like uh, when you read about the impact that it had, the psychological impact, and the professional impact to to a lesser extent. I mean, Moyes' professional career is maybe a bit more robust than Justine Sacco's, uh, and he certainly probably makes a bit more money. But the psychological effect of that, when you read about this having this person, and I mean, you consider what actually that man had to go through. Hmm. You know, it's kind of uh, well. I suppose the good thing was for Justine Sacco that. She's back on the road again, and so hopefully is David Moyes. You've got an email based on the guitar story we did with James Montague uh, earlier in the week. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's an interesting email here from um, Nick McGeehan. Um, <clears throat> who writes on uh, Second Captains at Irish Times. He writes to us, I'm the Qatar researcher at Human Rights Watch, uh, and he was saying he, he was listening to the piece on, from Monday with James Montague, uh, and he says it's complicated. He said the reduction of the problem to kafala is problematic. Kafala being the system of uh, the system by which migrant labourers kind of are governed with the system that they come under. Yeah, we spoke to James Montague, who's spent a lot of time over in, in Qatar and in the Middle East, writing about football and by extension writing about uh, societal issues as well. And he reckons that uh, while there are undoubted issues around the World Cup and around the treatment of migrant workers, he feels that at this stage to actually take it away would be the worst thing that could happen because that would then. Essentially, the workers will be seen as the people who've shamed Qatar, these very poor guys who've been brought over from Nepal. Well, now look what you've done to us. Yeah, that, that, that's... Running, crying yeah. to, the, to the world's media, which in fairness, 
it very rarely happens because they're too busy working. He says, Kafala is just one of the exploitative mechanisms that collectively facilitate forced labor slash servery slash servitude. And the difference between those terms is a minefield. So best to think of them as more or less the same thing. There are also huge issues with things like recruitment fees, passport confiscation, exit visas, trade unions and access to justice. Underpinning it all is the issue nobody talks about, which is the endemic racial discrimination against South Asians. Uh, he says the comparison with apartheid South Africa is appropriate. Um, I agree much with what James said, but he's incorrect on the point of Qatar being much further down the road than other Gulf states where Kafala reform is concerned. Uh, and he says actually they lag behind the, the United Arab Emirates. Um, James is absolutely right to question the fact that the UAE has been totally ignored. The fact is that the owners of the Premier League champions, who also own one of the main sponsors of the GAA, operate a system that is equally exploitative and abusive in practice. A week after I was permanently blacklisted from the UAE for writing about their unfortunate habit of disappearing and torturing bloggers, Islamists and activists, I was in meetings with senior government ministers in Qatar. So that's one reason why James is right to point to reasons for cautious optimism on Qatar. Now, this is just on the on the subject of the deaths of migrant workers. I mean, this is something that we had been speaking about the last couple of programs. He says, according to very limited data available, most deaths in Qatar and elsewhere in the Gulf arise from fatal heat stroke. Now, I assume there he's, he's meaning deaths among workers, although he doesn't say it. I mean, I'm, I assume it's heat stroke is not the chief cause of death in Qatar. Arise from fatal heat stroke, not workplace accident. Nobody has been able to get to the bottom of the issue because nobody has done the research. The claims that 400 workers will die in World Cup construction and counterclaims, the figures are statistically normal, are completely undermined by the fact that right now we simply do not know. We're going to do the research on this in June and we will report on it later this year. So, yeah, yeah, a few interesting things there, but that's from uh, Nick McGee at Human Rights Watch. That's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. The flame hair, the flame hair, the flame hair, the flame truth, Mr. Ken Early. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now before you give it up. Richie Sadler's in studio. Richie, how are things? Grant, how are you doing? We're doing pretty well. Uh, big question to start off. Would you rather be spat at or punched in the face? Spat at. Every day of the week. Really? Every day. You're the only person saying that. Alexi well, Lalas and others. Are... Oh, sorry. Just Ken not exist anymore. Oh, so I'm Ken. You, you and Ken. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the same side. You're the only you. highly respected football pundit, Richie, who I've heard <laughs> uh, say this. Yeah, well, well, can you give us your reason? I, well, I've spent many, many weeks and months in, in my life sitting on a physio bed as a result of either being kicked or... or have, I, have I ever broken a nose by an elbow? But that's an elbow, Richie. I mean, you well, know, it's a very a, specific punch in the face on a football field. Keeping in mind that the person punching you is a professional footballer, not a professional boxer, or not anyone who can... So we're limiting this just to a punch. There's no other yeah. attacking options. It's a punch in the face, that's all. Spit, you you wipe a spit off like it, it you barely but feel you feel it. demeaned Richie you feel like I don't fe- I wouldn't feel pretty great being punched either if you're mm. if you're ranking this yeah you can like but at least a punch, you it's can... mano a mano though Richie you know like you can you can <laughs> hit back I mean spitting is just you know you're dirt you're you're well, you know you're dirt on my shoe that's it, what I think of you but it's not a very respectful thing to do to someone to punch them either so if you, if you're arguing mm. that being spat on is a sign that the spitter 
doesn't think much of you, then I'd argue that the puncher could also be accused of that too. That is the argument I've seen made over the last 24 hours since the, since the incident at St. James's Park that this is the worst thing that can happen. This is worse than a bad tackle. In fact, I think Steve McManaman immediately said that in analysis, that this is, this is, this is the worst thing, which struck me. I mean, it is. Like, I don't want to also make light of it because it's absolutely disgusting and it is totally disrespectful. Um, but it, it's kind of funny how it is analysed in that context. Well, I think, I mean, so in my opinion, if I was spat at by you, for instance, um, the, the spit would, you know, hit me in the face. Imagine you got me squarely, you hit a bullseye, you know. Listen, no one doesn't miss. Dangling from the, from the end of my nose. I wipe that away, and suddenly there I am transformed into dignity on a monument. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, I can barely glimpse you from the top You're of the like high moral ground that I'm now. Exactly. Yeah. You're a yeah. Christ-like figure. And, and ev- everyone's seen it, and everybody knows what's happened. I mean, as long as there's someone else there to witness it, that's, that's key. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, suddenly, I'm suddenly looking at you and I'm going, really, Owen McDevitt? I've really? lost my dignity. That's Whereas if you punch me in the, in, the, in the nose, I would be blood, tears, snot. Uh, it, would be, it would be awful. I'd be feeling a lot of physical pain. And if you didn't take a swing back, you would be... There you go. We'd question your... Yeah, you're exactly. In the case of the spitting, the retaliation suddenly puts me down to your level. But if I if I don't punch you, then I'm. I mean, that's such as the warped warped ethics that we have. Paul Scholes' analysis of it was interesting. Richie, he <laughs> felt fairly convinced that Johnny Evans didn't actually spit at the player at CSA that he spat in the ground. He spat, yeah, he spat towards the ground. Um, you're not convinced. Well, maybe you could put that argument if he spat on the ground in a scene where nobody was there and then at the very last minute a player came sliding in out of his peripheral vision that he didn't see and the spit can't believe we're talking this much about his spit but then would land on the player absolutely that stands up but when that player is in front of you assuming he's taking up the majority of what you can see and you then spit in the direction that he's there and and, and you're not off balance you're, you, no one has pushed you at the last minute which might misdirect the intended Direction of the the spit, but it's that's an absurd point to make. Scott's argument, yeah, Scott's argument was, I know the guy; he's not the type. Well, when you see actual footage of somebody doing something, then maybe that's the starting point in a conversation as to whether someone did something. Mm. If you actually see them do it, then you can maybe have a discussion as to what kind of a personality he has. But when you see someone do something, then I said, well, no, he he's done it. Just just in terms of accuracy as well. I mean, as an expert witness, a former football player. What kind of, what kind of, well, because it is, football players spit all the time. I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, if you watch a match uh, with someone who doesn't watch football, usually they immediately always say, why do they, why do they spit all the time? On, on the ground, as opposed to... Why are they it? spitting all the time and clearing their nose in that more awful so, more, way? More so than GEA and rugby lads. That's a genuine question. I I'm not picking an yeah, argument here. I think so. That, I don't know yeah. what it is yeah. soccer, yeah. You say, yeah, you say that sort of, you know, the nasal clearing motion, you know, where you place the hand on the bridge well, of the nose. I always think of Brian McClare Brian when I think of that. I, Why is that? Unbelievable. He's, <laughs> done, he's done so much in his career and every time I think of him, I think he's the fella who clears his nose in that particular way. He was, just, he was just a bit adenoidal, you know, Brian McClare. Yeah. So some people are, are uh, just have freer breathing than others, but I suppose. But, you know, they, they do, you do, I suppose, develop a certain level of expertise with spinning as a, as a football player. Uh, to what, what kind of level of accuracy... Could you expect? I mean, if you were, a, I mean, this was something that Skulls raised. It wouldn't be difficult to hit him from there if that's what he was trying to do. <laughs> would, would you say that that if Evans' intention was to spit on Papi Cisse, he definitely would have hit him? 
again, I don't know, I can't believe we're talking in this much detail, but <laughs> last that's the last question. Okay. Um well yeah, you, you you would you would presume from that from that range <laughs> you would expect a high level of accuracy. He's got to be hitting the target from there, a professional Richard. athlete. Yeah. Do we do we do we put that in, in, yeah. in the mix here? He's I mean he trains every day, he's a fit fella. He, sh- he, should, <laughs> he shouldn't miss from that direction. But well, he's getting paid enough, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Him on his wages. Week. Exactly. <laughs> I want more. That, the Skulls analysis of that incident, Kent, was, was striking, but it was also... I know you're watching Fletch and Sav, a uh, program we I'm talked about. I'm kind of becoming, becoming addicted, addicted to Fletch, to Fletch, Fletch Well, Fletch especially Sav. in this midweek version where they've got Paul Skulls sitting there. But whoever's doing the match commentary on BT Sport, then... Heads up, uh, the match commentary and the match punditry then comes up and joins Fletch and Sad. Uh, by the way, I've never seen Michael Owen so animated. I thought he was great. Did you see him? Yeah. What did you think? Yeah, I hadn't seen him like that before. I, I, he was, I was watching it just listening. He to was him. alive. His yeah. eyes were shining. He even, was... even during the game, you're talking about? Well, after or, or the game. More so, in the, more so in, I really noticed after the game. He was sitting, he was going to sit in Because he gets a lot of stick from people. He had loads to say. Some kind of ginseng tea or something they'd given him. He was, he well, was... I don't think he's as bad as people make out, to be honest. But uh, not, not that he's incredible. He seems to get more stick than any other co-commentator. And I think, aside from Gary Neville... He's as good as any other guys. Uh, I think it probably has. You can't. The, the standard it. of co-commentary isn't amazing in the Premier League. There's some good pundits around, but there aren't that many people. Uh, Gary Neville straddles both of them, but yeah, you know, you look at guys like uh, I know Murph's bugbear is Davy Proven. No, actually, funnily enough, <laughs> someone got onto me about Davy Proven there recently on Twitter again, and it's not so much as I think he's, you know, terrible. I think he's just really average. And the fact that he's Davy Proven then. I mean, if, if I see Davy Proven, okay, I've never heard of him as a footballer. He played in, he's played in Scotland or whatever. I would say, right, if he's commentating on a live game on Sky, he must be brilliant because he's Davy Proven. But he's just as good as, you know, the, like a Paul Scholes character who has at least, you know, that kind of, the couple of league titles in the locker or something. But I, I, I do actually think Owen has gotten a good bit better even in the last two or three months. Because there there was a lot of footballer talk out of Michael Owen. But still on Twitter, he gets unbelievable yeah, abuse. You can't watch a game on BT Sport without Michael Owen. I mean, I think there's a couple of things about Michael Owen. No, number one, that he's this incredibly wealthy racehorse owner, which obviously gets people's back up. There was that ridiculous ad that he did for the car a little while, back, while ago. Did you see that? Which kind of fed into this, like, you know, he's like a guy who's unbelievably privileged and doesn't even kind of realise, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of... What was the ad? It was... Just for an over the top. I can't remember which which branded car it was, but Owen went and sort of was talking to some interestingly dressed car dealer about, uh, and, and he he was mentioning then all the cars that he's had. You know, tons. He's owned tons of cars. He's sponsored by X car brand and used to own loads of them. And then, uh, you know, cars are a bit like women, really. You know, it's the it's the appearance that sort of attracts you initially, and then you sort of get to know them. You know, the, these kind of like just. Blithely unconscious of how that, something like that would sound coming out. And then there was the helicopter that he was supposed to be getting to train in Newcastle. Then there's the fact that he changed clubs loads of times. So, say someone like Carragher or Neville or Thierry Henry has a kind of a, a solid base among you know all the all the people who are spouting bile on Twitter about it. At least some of them are on the side of the Man United fans are all on the side of Gary. Neville. You know, they're prepared to give Gary Neville a and even right skulls the same Carragher one club man Owen betrayed his original fan base moved to Newcastle moved to Madrid, moved to Newcastle they don't like him in Newcastle <laughs> moved to Man- Manchester United they don't remember him fondly yeah, in Manchester that, that United fans are thinking what, what, you know what's this guy talking about Alex Ferguson you know like 
This mm. guy only played under him for like three years. So, so I think maybe for that reason, he 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 doesn't quite have. He he starts from a little bit further back than the rest of them in terms of people. People are more ready to see the bad in in what Michael Owen does. But Michael Owen did well on Fletch and Staff. What was Skull saying that caught your attention? Well, just his, he's so negative about Van Hal. I'm I, I'm I'm just. Uh, uh, I mean, it's interesting because of who he is. So he's he played his whole life with Ryan Giggs. Ryan Giggs is Lee Van Hal's assistant. We also this strange footage of Lee Van Hal and Ryan Giggs when the goal went in, and Van Hal turns around to Giggs and sort of Giggs is face of stone. You know, he sort of gets out, gets up off the bench and claps a couple of times. But then when Van Hal turns around, he's got a face of stone, and Van Hal goes gets straight up in his face as though he was gloating over him. To say, and, and Giggs's face doesn't waver. Well, right? I, I read it more that Van Hal was trying to celebrate with him, and mm. Giggs completely refused to join. In, looked kind of annoyed. It had that look of somebody who has to spend a lot of time with somebody they don't get on very well with. That's kind of what it seemed a bit like. Now, again, this is just what you know. Just looking at a thing, you don't know how. Maybe you're misinterpreting the situation. Who knows what's really going on? But then you hear Skulls, who is has been obviously close to Giggs their whole career talking about Van Hal in fairly jaundiced terms, saying things like, well, you know, I mean, uh, the one thing he does have is Giggsy. Uh, you know, that's the one thing he's got going for him. Um, but, you know, I suppose the board, the club has employed him to bring his brand of football. It's not very exciting, but I suppose we just have to live with it. <laughs> I think he's, he's serious. You know, that's, that is, uh, I was surprised by that. Number one, be, well, I'm sorry. No, go on, yeah, number one. Well, his, the, the kind of football Van Hal is associated with is not really what Manchester United are playing yet. I mean, yeah. I don't know yet if you can stick this on him. You know, is this really, are these the players he really wanted to sign or were they the ones Manchester United thought would be appropriate for a club of their size, you know? Um, and then the fact that it's Giggs, Giggs is the assistant. Is this what Giggs and Skulls talk about? Maybe they don't talk to each other anymore. Maybe Giggs is like, no. Um, I will. I won't talk about Manchester United to anyone. But how can you not talk about Manchester United to the man who is Manchester United? Well, this is what we were goals. talking about in the Sugar Club last week, Richie. Uh, the, the how close certain pundits are to certain clubs, and certainly Paul Scholes is close to Manchester United. Has been identified with them through his entire career. Is it likely that somebody like Paul Scholes could be without, without knowing the guy could be operating without any knowledge of Ryan Giggs's opinion on Louis Van Gaal? I'd be amazed. If, if, if he didn't have any I'd be amazed if Paul Scholes doesn't know exactly what Ryan Giggs thinks of Van Hal and exactly how Ryan Giggs thinks things are going within the dressing room or in the training ground. I saw those comments last night and I, that was my first thing as well. I thought there's extra weight with these words because my assumed because he, I assume he is the inside track from Giggs. Um, I mean, he was scathing of, of, of Van Hal. He just trotting out, you know, he's spent 150 million. He's big enough the idea of finishing fourth. Yeah. That was a, Rubbish that, in the way he plays. So many things. This guy sounds like he's happy with fourth. Yeah. It's not good enough. Well, this is good. Maybe Skulls then is, give, is giving us more insight into Louis van Gaal than anyone else has so far. If this is the, if he does have this extra information, maybe we should be listening to Paul Skulls about Louis van Gaal. And his criticism of yeah, van Gaal. Maybe it's, is it legitimate? Does, is van Gaal, uh, he does seem to be grinding out quite a lot of uh, wins without playing particularly good football, but... Uh, where do you stand on, on Van Gaal? Short answer is I really don't know. Yeah. Because there, there's the one side of you look at the results and say, well, that, that's quite impressive. They, they, they're in decent league position. What's the stat? Is it two defeats in 22 or whatever yeah. it is? Um, but I think you obviously have to go beyond, when you're discussing something, you have to go beyond the results. I watched them last night and, and it annoyed me how bad they were, partly because I, I, 
I had two tickets to go see Noel Gallagher last night in the Three Arena. <laughs> and I stayed in because I knew he was coming on here today. I, thought, I can't come on here. <laughs> oh, I can't believe no. it. You should have said something. I can't come on and bluff. I've done it many times before, but I can't come on and bluff my way through a podcast having not watched the match that I assume we're going to talk about. So as the game went on, the more and more, like the pace was slow. They were so unimaginative. They were, it was, it was awful. Made all the worse because I was thinking how good Noel Gallagher could have been. <laughs> Yeah, so they actually put me in bad form last night. Uh, funny, Van Hal said that was their best performance of the season. Yeah. Or one of, at least one of them, wasn't it, Ken? Yeah, you know, it was the best yeah. performance of the season, he said. Yeah. What, well, like, what elements, what aspects of last night's performance would, 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 would make him say that? Like, Win, clean sheet. Again, we're into stats. We're into, like, the, the end result. Like, so it's, it's a 1-0 win, hard fought away, a hard place to go, blah, 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 80, last-minute win or whatever it was. But in terms of the actual the, the, the flow of the game... Like, which part of that performance made him say that? I don't know. Bar that they're reasonably solid defensively. As in they didn't score, concede a goal. <laughs> That's as solid as you can be. Yeah, although they should have conceded a goal. I mean, there was Anna Herrera lost the ball and um, Papi Cisse had a, had a good chance, which he, he kind of screwed wide. And then there was obviously the penalty as well, uh, which wasn't given. So um, maybe they were a little bit lucky. But, you know, I, what I find a little bit strange about the way Skull talks about finales. This guy does come with a reputation. It's not as though he's, he's you know, some uh, novice manager who's just suddenly arrived at Manchester United and doesn't have a history before then. I mean, Skulls talks about him as though he's literally got no idea who this guy is. Now, which, which, which is fine. Yeah, I mean, you, you're looking at Van Halen thinking, okay, this guy has done great work in the game. I mean, really great work. One of the top coaches uh, in Europe over the last 25 years. Right? Yeah. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he's won... Um, the Champions League, he's won the UEFA Cup, you know, with Ajax. He's won uh, league titles in three different countries. Uh, you know, it's an outstanding uh, career record that he has. Of course, everybody only has a certain amount to give, you know. Everybody's story comes to an end. Has, has Van Hal already done his best work? This maybe is what Paul Scholes is suggesting. Maybe that the manager currently at Manchester United is not really is not the same man who was the manager of that IX team that won the Champions League and got to the Champions League final the next year with a bunch of twenty year olds. That you know, that's that was old Van Hal, but the the you know, current mid sixties Louis Van Hal is no longer capable of that kind of work. That which I, I, I can only imagine is what Skulls means, because the way that he talks about him is not respectful of the record in any way. Yeah, the uh, one thing that a manager shouldn't lose though is, is his ability to get the best to coach players uh, effectively, to get talented players as he always has done. Now maybe they've been younger in some of those clubs. Certainly in Ajax, it's maybe easier to mould a guy who's seventeen, eighteen, nineteen than it is when they're in their mid twenties. But somebody like Falcao comes over, he's now going to get bombed out of the club at the end of the season. It looks like didn't get a minute on the pitch yesterday. They're bringing on Michael Carrick into a match that they're chasing. Uh, they're chasing a goal in. Di Maria was taken off yesterday and was muttering to himself a little bit. Uh, Even I, Fellaini had a, had a mutinous little shake, shake of the, the head. head. <laughs> when he was that, yeah. That's okay, though. I don't, I don't, that's, that's that big a deal. It, it's, it's a lack of... Uh, and Fellaini has done some decent stuff for Van Hal, but it's, it's a lack of um, ability to get the best out of guys like Di Maria, whatever, 60 million euro. Falcao, if they were to sign him, would be another 30 or 40 or whatever. They won't sign him. Yeah, they're not going to now. But they've still spent a lot of money on him for just one season. Uh, is that the, the damning indictment that he's not getting the best out of those sort of players? They're not playing anything like they're capable of. And you've just gone through, listed a couple of them there. Di Maria, Falco, even Van Persie when he's played. 
Um, Matt, uh, like any of the big, the, the the big names, attacking players, the ones that cost a lot of money, they're playing nowhere near what we're capable of. And a lot of the talk around Van Hal is, you know, what, what he's tinkering with the system or the formation. But if you go back to individual performances and 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 getting the group to look as if they believe in themselves or motivated or together, all of those things, they're 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 lacking all of those qualities. So it's not so much as whether he's played three at the back or four at the back or two up front or where he plays Rooney, but when the team goes out and plays, um, it's almost a waste of time comparing them to Fergie's time, but they are, it, it, it's so different from them because they, they don't seem to have that belief or that arrogance or that togetherness that United teams in the past had. The togetherness is the thing that I think, I think is missing from the team. Um, I mean, and when you look at the, the actual squad, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a jumble now. It's like, who's going to be there next year? Is Van Persie going to be there? You know, is Falcao? Almost certainly not. But, you know, you've got new guys kind of coming in, Herrera, Blind, you know, Rocco, guys like this. To what extent are they kind of integrated yet? To what extent do you actually really have a collective there as opposed to a bunch of individuals? I mean, I think one of the things also, maybe one of the problems Van Hal has is, is, the, uh, is the ability to, to create a kind of, um, you know, a kind of a good team atmosphere. He's obviously kind of a socially awkward guy. He's not like Alex Ferguson was. You know, the way Ferguson... I'm not suggesting Ferguson was, you know, smiles and sunshine all the time. But, you know, he did have a certain... You remember there was a story that... Was it Rio Ferdinand told? Uh, Rio Ferdinand obviously hated... Hated is strong, but didn't seem to really rate David Moyes that highly. A lovely man, just not the right man. Uh, and he had this story about, uh, oh, Moyes, you know, he wouldn't let us eat chips... Yeah, right? remember that. Yeah. Moyes, Moyes, to which Moyes later said, well, they were fat. You know, it's not mother eating chips. I mean, <laughs> this is the wrong kind of food for fat men to eat. Uh, but Ferdinand said, what do you, you remember what happened when David Moyes was sacked? What was the first thing that the new manager, Ryan Giggs, did? Let them eat chips. All right, lads. <laughs> you know, it's chips time. And they all, and uh, you know, they were all, you know, having chips and having a bit of a laugh, you know, and this is great. And they all apparently felt much better now about this. Do you think they're eating chips now? Uh, Van Hal. So you're saying they should I, be eating chips? I'm not saying they should be eating chips. I'm saying I don't think they've got that kind of relaxed <clears throat> atmosphere that they used to have. Giggs is used to has spent his whole career working there in what's a kind of a relaxed, casual atmosphere. We can kind of, you know, I th- it's I think something he feels I, I comfortable think in. I think you're painting the Alex Ferguson dressing room as a slightly sunnier environment than it was. Uh, Roy Keane there wrecking everyone's head for ten years of their careers. Yeah, well, he was. I mean, he was gone the last. Nearly ten years, but there years. was a constant pressure in there. I don't, I, I don't buy. I don't know. Richard, do you buy this theory? Did you, did you, yeah, you just call it like this relaxed training yeah. environment. Yeah, I think that's so, not yeah. the word that came into. That wouldn't be how I would imagine that environment. There to was have a Laura, Laura laughs. <laughs>, laughs. Paul, Paul Scholes, uh, you know what would happen when someone would would uh, feel the call of nature during a training session? Kick oh, the ball at their head. Paul Scholes had hit his arse from forty yards. Is anybody doing that? Could Daily Blend even do that? Would he even think to do it? These are the questions that people should be asking. Richie, last word on that. Just just rubbish that theory and then we'll let you head, head out. Yeah, no, not particularly rubbish. Richie Sander, <laughs> great to have you in as always. Oh, and Richie, just next time, feel free to go to the Noel Gallagher gig and we'll, we'll just do a review of the gig. That suits you. That would be great. Thanks so much. And happy birthday. Thank you, Richie. Good luck. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. Let's Luger, we got a date with Destiny right now. Yeah. I will concede, Ken, that 
Alex Ferguson created an environment that allowed players to be relaxed, to have a certain freedom to express themselves on the field. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, your argument does make a certain amount of sense that they were that they had a freedom to play a certain way and I suppose that's the aim of any good coach is to make them as relaxed as possible and, and on, on, the tr- on the pitch the but training ground as well Ferguson usually wasn't there I mean he sometimes was but you know okay he's, he's watching he's got the eye of Sauron Lou Van Hal is a guy who wants to be there controlling uh, controlling the training that's I don't know if that I don't know how much of a difference that actually makes though the t- the tone a manager sets at the club can be set without him necessarily peering over every single training session. Hmm. The coaches are going to act on his behalf. The players are going to know that he could be looking at them at any given time. Could he see Could he see the training ground from his office? Yeah, I think the whole thing was, was pretty much built like a panopticon. <laughs> uh, the idea was that uh, Ferguson's eye could theoretically be on you no matter where you were standing <laughs> on, on the compound. That's the worst thing, actually. That's, that's yeah. worse again. That wouldn't relax me, Ken, to be honest with you. No. You know, if, uh, if you, as my boss, were... He he. I think in later years he actually started to employ doubles. Um, he did. Uh, and Alex amazing. Ferguson double would stand uh, with his hands behind his back, sort of gazing <laughs> out, gazing out the office window over the training grounds. But actually, it was just uh, you know. Do I have this completely? Did Mussolini do that as well? I think. Or did, no, he just left the light on in his office. Was that it? Oh yeah. He didn't oh, actually have a cardboard cutout of himself. All the great, a portly, bold cutout. <laughs> the truly great tyrants all end up employing doubles at once. It's, it's the only way you can <laughs> you can really uh, run things. I'm sure. If you're in case you're wondering why Richie was wishing a happy birthday, there it is. Our, our second second captain's second birthday this week. Uh, so big thanks everybody for all their support over the last couple of years. Uh, we don't. It's not that we. Myself, Murph, and Ken all share the exact same birthday, which would have been no, we're like very the, convenient. We're like the Queen. We've changed all of our birthdays to the 4th of March. It's just easier. The Airtricity League kicks off tomorrow night. Emmett Malone is in studio. Emmett, you're very welcome. Hi, Owen. Thanks. The, uh, you wrote a piece today, and the, the general tone of it, I guess, is that there's a much sounder financial footing now for a lot of the... for Well, for all the clubs, yeah. really. The madness of a few years ago is well and truly gone, mm. which is a good thing, I suppose. But uh, with the net result that... A lot, a lot of people, a lot of players don't necessarily feel it's financially very viable to play League of Ireland football anymore. Certainly outside of the top few clubs, the kind of money on offer is by necessity um, not great, really. No, that's it. I mean, you did have a situation where um, I think during the height of the boom, you had, you know, a handful of players on on kind of two, three thousand euro a week. But a, but a, but a good, solid, you know, uh, like better end uh, Premier League player. Was 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 earning you know a thousand euro or or slightly more? I think I remember somebody quoting me a figure of around twelve hundred uh, euro might be a, might be a, you know a fellow who's doing reasonably well now. And 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 at that time, I think quite a few of the clubs were paying you know well some of the clubs were paying year round. Some of the better players, as part of that negotiating process, would have been able to to uh, extract a, a fifty two week contract. Um, in the mayhem that uh, that that followed the uh, the financial crash here, generally because it was you know the clubs were were benefiting in no small part in quite a few cases from developers putting in money, um, people who were you know very very tied to the boom and seemed to think they had uh, more money than they literally knew what to do with you know um, uh, that 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 plummeted pretty dramatically and and there were there were some really big casualties afterwards and I think you know I, I think any anyone who out there who's who's had a pay cut as as uh, for instance. Irish Times staff have had a, had a pay cut in the height of it 
you know most most of us most of us spend what we're what we're told we're going to be getting and uh, um uh, you know if you've had a 5% or a 10% pay cut then you feel that but uh, these guys were were losing two thirds of their money uh, their contract as their contract would end and they went looking to uh, to renew with somebody at their own club or to go somewhere else um what was on the table was dramatically reduced to the point where I mean, I've certainly heard the figure of twelve hundred euro a week uh, being the uh, being the highest paid player in the league last year, and that would probably be on a forty week contract. So you got twelve weeks of of of, of the year where where there's just something nothing coming in at all. Uh, it's 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 a it's a transformed landscape. I mean, you spoke to Stephen McGuinness, um, the general secretary of the FBI, yeah. who said that um, you know a lot of guys will be making well, effectively two hundred euros a week. Uh, yeah, guys getting five, six hundred now, two, now getting a third of that. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that it's it will be difficult. I mean, it's 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 scarcely more really than than social welfare, and yeah. it will be difficult to to live a kind of a sportsman's life on that. I mean, if you if you're a, someone who's supposed to buy you know fruit, vegetables, and all this kind of stuff, yeah, you, it's. It's hard to see how these guys are getting by in that. Yeah, it is. I mean, a lot of them would have other jobs. I mean, it, it's a strange thing where we seem to have returned to a situation where there are the demands of, of full-time professionalism put on these these people. They train a lot. They are, they're expected to look after each other, to live their kind of life in a particular way. And yet the rewards are, are not what you would expect from full-time professional sports. Um uh, more the sort of thing you would get in 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 uh, you know amateur codes where where there is a kind of maybe a few quid as compensation or expenses or whatever, um, but it's not really considered a, a living wage. Um, and and you know so there's a mix of people here. I mean one there, there's. It's quite a complicated kind of transformation that the league has gone uh, undergone over the last few years. I mean, one of the things that's happened is the average age has plummeted. You know, so you have young players coming through from from under nineteen teams and going into the league. The average age of the players in the league generally is now just twenty four. Um, and so I think when what Stephen was making the point certainly yesterday that. Um, uh, two categories of people have been have been kind of you know big losers in this. Uh, one would be uh, older players uh, as the as the age profile has gone down because uh, what you do have is young players who are willing to take very small money because they see it potentially as in so many walks of life as a starting point and a stepping stone to to greater things. Uh, also, also clubs are you know the, the the possibility of selling on a player to England or something like that. Uh, has become um, a bigger part of the the financial calculation of running a club. Although that's very difficult when you're only offering one-year contracts because if you look for any sort of serious money from an English club, They'll just kind of look at you and mm. say, "Well, we'll just, we'll just wait." Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're never more than a few months away from the end of the guy's contract, you know. So, um, so the negotiating position of clubs is pitifully weak in, in a great many cases, and so they 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 send some talented lads to England for next to nothing. Um, and and also the other thing I think Stephen was pointing out was that it's the middle ranking player. Like at the, at the top now, we've seen, you know, obviously it's not the big four in England or whatever, but you have seen four kind of clubs who, who finished top four last year probably kind of favourites to do so again Sligo who who cut back uh, slightly over the last few months because they were getting back into some financial difficulty against the background of very sub- substantial um, infrastructural investment uh, at the showgrounds mm. so their priority had shifted to elsewhere at least temporarily um, so you do have those top four clubs uh, you could maybe uh, add Sligo to that in some way. And they're competing for the very best players. They see themselves as potentially winning the league, certainly getting into Europe, which with the prize money that brings now is a, is a very big goal. Um, but the middle ranking you know, clubs, um, uh, you know, the, the next four to six clubs where 
you know, five, six, seven years ago, it would have been a decent living to be made, I think, you know, and these were the guys who were, you know, solid, good League of Ireland footballers. And there, I think, is where you've seen, you know, wage levels, you know, tumble to a level that, as you say, you'd really want to be doing it. That's clearly not great for the players, the current players, particularly, as you said, the older players, yeah. even some of the younger ones, you know, who, who sure. a few years ago would have been better remunerated. For the league in general, is it... Is there optimism that this is just the natural process, that it's, it's, it's a cyclical thing and now it's come down to a sensible level again, that, uh, that clubs are now, they're not in the red anymore? Well, well it, sounds, it sounds actually like a like kind of an IMF analyst's dream situation. Like this, uh, yeah. you know, this kind of low wages, flexible workforce. Yeah. The, only, the question there would be, what's the debt situation today? Do, are a lot of clubs still in debt? If, if no, not, I don't think so. I don't think there's. Uh, I don't think there's huge levels of debt there. I, I think one of the uh, one of the strange things about it and uh, is that you know when you have owners and um, whether, whether it be a single person, um, as in a Garrett Kelleher at, at, at St Pat's or Pat O'Sullivan down at Limerick, or where you have you know fans at, at Cork City, um, uh, they put in e- equity and it just becomes you know part of the club's money. It's not a situation. Here where, uh, due to a mix of the um, a mix of the regulations and the financial reality of the situation, um, you know, loaning League of Ireland clubs is not is, is is not a major factor. So I don't think. I mean, there are there are certainly there is certainly some debt there. Um, we've seen some difficulties out in Bray Wanderers and a change of ownership there that that was partly rooted in a, a in a in a mounting debt situation. But I don't think that's a widespread problem. I think the um, the uh, uh, sorry, and Bohemians was another issue. But I, I think there's going to be you know Daily Mount will be taken over. I, I think it's inevitable by the by the city council, and that will uh, largely address that that problem there. Um, there are problems, at di- different problems at, at, at different clubs. But I think in general, um, the feeling is that once the clubs got out of that cycle of if they'd given players two and three year contracts um, if they could you know stagger along to that point and then renegotiate you know as at Bohemians in, in one fell swoop almost dramatically cut the cost of their, their squad I mean I, I, you know you take a club like Drawd United I mean the, the wage bill there is less than 10% of what it was seven, eight years ago it's it's astonishing and I agree with you it is absolutely yeah I mean the, this is the, what the, we're told the, the IMF, ideal going, growth you know Paraguay you know and going <laughs> like just look at the League of Ireland you know you can, you can do it too um, Is there an optimism though that it can build from that that this is a start yeah. You, you build some sort of a sensible business model and, the, and then ideally in 10 years' time, so this, is the, this is the same question we could have asked you 10 years ago about the League yeah, of Ireland. Yeah, I think, I, 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 think, uh, I, I think to a certain extent the League of Ireland is the, the kind of wider economy writ large. Um, uh, and when, when, when it booms, it booms, booms like nothing on earth, you know. And when it, when, when it, it hits a slump, um, it, it really crashes and burns. Um, it's it's based on the disposable income of um, of you know punters, ordinary fans who who pay their money and bring their kids or whatever, and and, and we've seen you know a decline in, in the number of people who can you know if money's tight you maybe cut out a game or two a month, uh, but also at the higher level in terms of business people who are in cash businesses or you know businesses that were, that were just absolutely booming and stopped putting money in and sponsorships and and so there's a bit of that coming back. I think there's a frustration um, you know uh, across the league that. You know, mistakes were made, and um, that that there was this uh, definite kind of attempt to progress the quality of playing on the field, uh, to go more full time, more professional, um, and to re- remunerate 
players for that properly. You know, uh, that side of things has gone back. But people look now and say, right, we've been through this massive boom where an awful lot of money went through the clubs, and what have we got to show for it in, in bricks and mortar? And the answer is very little. In, in some cases, in some cases, some some spectator facilities have improved, but all in almost none to the sort of standard you know uh, you, you would hope for or expect after you know, mm. like nobody would have built a cinema um, during the during the boom to the same sort of spec that we see most of the, the stands, you know, going up around the League of Ireland. There are a couple of notable exceptions. I think the showgrounds, decent ground. Um, Tala is certainly decent ground. You know, there's, there's a few. Cork City, you know, like there's a few bits and pieces. Marketsfield hopefully will be open in a few weeks' time. There have be, has been some progress. But beyond that, I mean, it's, 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 it's wafer thin, you know, beyond that. If you look beyond it, virtually none of them have their own training grounds. None of them have their academies. I mean, you still have... Um, s- major schoolboy clubs in the in in in, in the league here in Dublin at, um, that have far you know like really enviable uh, business models by the standards of League of Ireland clubs because they don't bother with the senior football at all. They simply take in promising eleven year olds and um, and and coach them to it in an inch of their lives. And uh, at sixteen, they either go to England or they're discarded. And um, that doesn't, you know, I can see the sense of that. That is absolutely, uh, again, if you want to be completely rootless about this and look at it in, in, in black and white terms, that's the way to go. But uh, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's very little romance about it. What effect does it have? I mean, the, the one thing about the uh, League of Ireland that it has had over the last um, few seasons is a, is a certain element of unpredictability. Yeah. Um, a champions in 10 years. Um, you know, players, obviously this flux of players that's, yeah. that's happening now. You don't know who's going to be playing for your club from season to season, no. you know, and, and players switch around quite a lot. No, you wouldn't be putting anybody's name on the back of your shirt. <laughs> yeah. Sure, yeah. But what effect What effect do you think it ha- I mean, that that idea of, you know, putting the name on your shirt is obviously, yeah, you know, unless you're buying a shirt every every season. But what effect does it have, do you think, on, on the appeal to supporters? Because... You know the unpredictability is is something which is which is generally regarded, I think, as a good thing in in. in it is, league. except I mean, you have to say that for a number of years there, the the the, the league champions were were changing because you know this is a kind of long-standing gag in the League of Ireland that uh, the club that had won it the year before was now like on the verge of going out of business, you know, which is not really such a good thing. Uh, I mean, that's steadied to to a, to a, to a very great extent, and you know, you had St Patrick's winning it, and they're in you know in in a solid position. Dundalk now. Coming back from the brink um, of of falling off a cliff a few years ago, um, making very steady progress, great manager, and you know they win the league last year and they will be contenders again. And, and again, this is all part of this sort of thing that people have consolidated to such an extent that it is kind of pushing forward. And, and in sporting terms, there's definitely you know definitely you know progress being made on the pitch again. But it's within the you know it's within the context of players being lost to the game, competition for places being lost to the game. Because the rewards are really so so poor, and, and and players going to England to play in you know very low divisions over there, mm. um, when when an attempt was being made to keep them here and and and, and make progress in, in in international competition in Europe. Who's going to uh, taking that unpredictability into account? Who's going to win the championship this year? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I as Ken says, I think it's down to four. You know, probably four. I, I can't see. I, I'd be uh, here. He would have to work miracles. I think up in Sligo after after the cut. The, Things reflect the budgets, you know, um, very closely, as you know, in just about every league in the world. And St. Pat's is certainly up there. Shamrock, Pat Fennan knows how to win a league when he, when he, when he builds the team himself. I, I'm going to go for Cork City. Uh, I, I, I like John Caulfield a lot. He's a good manager. I think that they're very much where Dundalk were, you know, 12 months ago. They've narrowly missed out. They have upward momentum. Um, 
Dundalk obviously will now discover how hard it is to go to places as league champions. They've also lost the goals that Pat Hooban brought to the team. Uh, Caulfield, he needs a few things to go right for him. He needs them to keep scoring. He needs some of those experienced players who've come back to the league from abroad, uh, ex-internationals in a few cases, to do it for them back back here, you know, to be fit and to, and, and to contribute. They might lack a bit of pace, but if everything pulls together with them, uh, I think they might win it. And, and I think it would be a great story. OK, Emma, great stuff. Thank you. Cheers. Hairdryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. Oh, no, he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Can you mention to me before we came on today that um, the slogan for the Air Frisky League is real football, real fans? Mm. Which uh, is a little bit off-putting, is it not? Real football, real fans. So there's almost the implication there that if you don't go to these games, it's the one issue that people from outside who don't follow Etrisi League would have with Etrisi League fans. It's sometimes not all of them, but some of them can be a little bit insular. And while they they say more people should watch their own game, saying implying that you're not a real fan if you don't. Well, who's your target? Your different. target audience if you're the Electricity League, but you want more people to come to your games. People who don't go to the games. Who watch the Premier League. Yeah. People who watch the Premier League, people who are interested in football, but don't go to the live sport that's happening right in front of them. By definition, you're saying you're not a real fan if you're not going to the Electricity League. Yeah. That, to me, doesn't seem like a very positive message to be sending out to the untold, vast, huge... Like some of people like waiting to consume your product. Like there, there's th- hundreds of thousands of people waiting to consume your product, and you're telling them, yeah. "Well, are you really though? Are you really a real fan?" It, it I think it gets people's um, backs up a bit. You know, oh, I'm not a real fan. All oh, right, and you're a real fan. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. I see. It's. I mean, I think the football league in England actually has, has a similar type of slogan. Um, there's a couple of things. There's another thing about it is that real football makes it sound almost a bit like medicine. You know, um, this is the, the liver and greens of, of, of football, you know. <laughs> it's got all the stuff that's good for you. Yeah. You, know? Well, like, like, you know, the real football, I suppose, is the real football atmosphere. You know, like, uh, you know the, the fact that you're going to a game, you're standing on a terrace, whatever. I, like, I don't really have much of a problem with, with that part of it. Yeah. But it's, the, you know, the other... Thing. It seems a little bit more like name calling than a slogan for an event should be. Really, yeah. you know, the the London Olympics it didn't. You know, the the Olympics doesn't have where the hell have you been for the last four years as a slogan. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. not a very good idea. Oh you know? yeah, finally oh, you look show who's up. Back. You only sing when you're winning. <laughs> look you <know>? who's back. <laughs> Look who comes crawling back every four years. Murph, we've got a podcast already out today. Set it for our listeners, please. Uh, well, why not, On uh, It's Connor Murray speaks to Simon Hick, two scrum halves, just John about scrum halving. Uh, and we also have US Murph talking about how brilliant spring break is. Uh, which, as we were saying in our earlier no, spring show, training, spring training, sorry, spring yeah, break. It's not like spring spring break. <laughs> U.S. Murph isn't in Cancun at the moment, going absolutely God. crazy. With Why some don't we people. said U.S. Murph on spring break next year? That would be even better. Spring break. God, that shows where my mind is. Uh, spring training, uh, which is basically baseball with even less riding on it than a regular season one of 162 games. Uh, and he also tells us the U.S. reaction to Padraig Harrington, and we tell him 
uh, about the Irish reaction, which was basically everyone took a half day from work to watch uh, Portrait Carrington win over a million US dollars. Have listened to that and the other shows on the Irish Times platform. IrishTimes.com forward slash podcasts is the, the site to go to there. You can follow us on Twitter as well at Second Captains and contact us by those means or email. I think we gave the email address earlier on there. Second Captains at IrishTimes.com. You can give it again. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Owen. And thanks, Ken. Thanks, many for listening. Enjoy your day. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.